I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I know you think they're sappy and bland. And you hated La La Land. But I gotta make you understand They can be profound and beautiful So I need you to like musicals This episode of I Need You to Like Musicals is brought to you by... Just kidding. Nobody. Hi, my name is Chris. Welcome to I Need You to Like Musicals. This is my new podcast venture. Brought to you by the team that brought you Sondheim on Adderall. The team of one, me, alone, in my studio office here in beautiful Van Nuys, California. I feel like this podcast is on the same stream as that podcast. So there's a good chance that this just popped up. If you're a, you, if you were a subscriber to Sondheim on Adderall, you're probably thinking, what the hell is this? Where did Sondheim on Adderall go? Uh, Sondheim on Adderall didn't go anywhere. If you look below this episode, I feel like they're still there, maybe with um, different little title tags. I don't know. I haven't done any of that yet, but that doesn't matter because that's in the future. But to you, it's in the past. Uh, let me tell you what happened. So a few, let's call it six months ago, I had the idea that it would be fun to do uh, a little podcast uh, where I talk about Sondheim musicals. For those of you who were not listeners to Sondheim on Adderall, the thinking there was um, I had a prescription for Adderall for the first time since high school, and I found that when the pills were working, uh, all that I wanted to do was uh, pontificate about uh, Sondheim musicals, because I have uh, a wealth of information in my head about them from my youth, my adolescence. I was a big Sondheim fan. And so I decided to sort of yeah, use a podcast as a release valve for that. Now, I thought at the time, once I get through these shows, you know, 10, 11, 12, the Sondheim shows that I care about, as we all know, I skipped quite a few that I didn't care about. By then, you know, surely the experience will have been had and I can move on with my life and uh, find some way, if I ever run for president, to make these episodes disappear, scrub them from the public memory. That didn't happen. Uh, I got done with it and I had so much fun uh, and it's probably my narcissism. <laughs> I had so much fun sitting here uh, talking to myself once a week for 90 minutes that uh, I was sad that I ran out of uh, shows to talk about. So sad that I did two endless, aimless bonus episodes. So um, the only solution was to expand the purview of the show and to make it about all musicals not just Sondheim. Now, if you're a new listener, I know what you're asking yourself. Why would I want to listen to one more asshole talk about musical theater on a podcast? Listen, I can't answer that for you. All I know is that I'm full of opinions. I'm prescribed Adderall XR, and uh, it makes me talk exhaustively about them. Things that interest me, musicals interest me, and there's the thing is, there's no finite amount of podcasting space. So I'm not bothering anyone. So let me just fucking do this, okay? Feel free to not listen. That's another thing, new listeners. You're going to hear me a lot of times uh, begging you to stop listening, uh, which is self-defeating. But uh, it's a uh, defense mechanism tick that I have. So I'll try to keep that in check, but I can't make any promises. Um... So yeah, there you go. And if you're not a new listener, uh, if you were a listener to Sondheim on Adderall, welcome back. I hope you enjoy this journey. I don't, we don't know where it's going to take us. 
I think that the main theme of this, uh, one thing that might set it apart from other musical theater podcasts, maybe not, I don't know, I'm not trying to, uh, I don't think that I'm that unique, is that I love musicals, but I really just love the thing, the musical itself. I don't like the subculture. I don't like musical theater people. Now, let me tell you something. Person to person, I think they're great. Uh, if I, anybody that's you know does musicals uh, regionally in Los Angeles or professionally on a larger scale, or even in just in a high, the college community theater setting, if I have coffee with that person, I'm sure that they're awesome. I'm sure that they're a great person. I just don't like the musical theater vibe, groupthink, sense of humor. I think that uh, yeah, but so yeah, I I think what that means is. You know, I don't know if I'm ever going to have a guest on this show, or if it's always just going to be me. But if I ever do have a guest, it's probably not going to be a musical theater person. It's probably going to be somebody in some other field. Somebody that I want to convince to like musicals. And that's kind of why, uh, hence the title. I have this weird compulsion since, let's call it high school, for... Uh, convincing people to love musicals as much as I love them because I feel like the ones that get done and the ones that are in the public uh, consciousness Annie and so on uh, are not the best ones and I want to talk about some of the ones that are good and I want to talk about some of the ones that are bad and why they're bad and uh, you feel free to disagree. Feel free to leave a comment. Feel free to leave a hateful comment on iTunes. See if I care. I'm not going to talk about Sondheim shows because I've beaten that dead horse. I think we can all agree on that. Um, also, I'm just burnt out on uh, the, you know, as I talked about in my final bonus episode, I went to that Hollywood Bowl show, and even though I knew consciously these are good performances of these songs, the songs have gone the way of Christmas songs and Beatles songs in my head, where they they don't permeate anymore, because I listen, this this year, doing this podcast, revisiting everything, it's all just, uh, it's it's too much, too much, so I'm on Sondheim Blackout, uh, not gonna see any Sondheim shows or listen to any Sondheim music for a while, and I'm not gonna say that word Sondheim as much as I, uh, have been. I will say real quick though, before I uh, hold myself to that, <laughs> I think that you'll find in this podcast that it's actually pretty rare for me to love a musical the way I love a Sondheim musical. And I think that I may just be a Sondheim fan and not a musicals fan. Uh, but there are a few that get through and some that are sort of in a middle place. Now, here's the way this is going to go for now. I don't want to paint myself into a corner again. This might change. But I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick two shows and sort of put them in conversation with each other. That's what I've done this week. Um, you know, and maybe one will be an old one. Maybe one will be a new one. Maybe one will be a good one. Maybe one will be a bad one. Maybe it's just two shows that are similar. Who knows? Could be. Who knows? I sang that song at work uh, the other night for the first time. I, uh, I, I'm a singing waiter at a a legendary Italian restaurant here in Los Angeles. And um, one of my coworkers suggested I sing that song. And I sang it, and I had a nice time. So anyway, um, let's get into it, folks. The two shows that we are going to talk about today have a lot in common. Not at first glance, but if you really dig in, nah, they have a lot in common at first glance. The two shows are Oliver and Matilda the Musical. 
So I think that what's going to happen, at least in this episode, we'll see what happens going forward. I, 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 my entry point for these are the movies, the movie musicals, not the shows themselves. Because here's the thing, I haven't seen either of these shows on stage. I live in Los Angeles, California, and things pass through here. Certainly we get national tours, just like any other major city or metropolis in the country. But um, yeah, I, just, I haven't seen Matilda on stage. I haven't seen Oliver on stage. Um, and more importantly, I am a fan of the movie musical. I think the movie musicals are great, and I actually wanted this to be a movie musical podcast. Uh, that gorgeous theme song that you just heard by Compassion Fatigue. Thank you, Compassion Fatigue, for that song, that theme song. Um, the the original version of that was I need you to like movie musicals because it was going to be a movie musical podcast. But then I was like, why am I painting myself into another corner? I could run out of those, and then I'll end up choosing you know Spice World. Or fucking, uh, you know, the Blues Brothers. I remember in middle school, I was like very outraged that Spice World was in the musicals section because I was like, that's not a fucking musical. Fuck this. Anyway, so my, my the, the, all this to say, <laughs> my analysis of these shows is going to be based on the movie versions of them. There are movie versions of uh, Matilda and Oliver. <sighs> so let's talk about it. Um... There's a lot of similarities here, right? Um, first of all, obviously they both have uh, titular characters, <laughs> title characters, um, that are children being clobbered and fucked over by mean adults all the way through, and they're rescued in the end by a small glimmer of kindness from a Miss Honey or a Mr. Whatever. So uh, that's pretty uh, obvious. Also, um, both are very well tailored as movie musicals. Um, Matilda, as we all know, came out last year on Christmas uh, 2022. Mat uh, Oliver came out in 1968. There's an art, uh, of course there is, to taking a show from the stage and determining how to film it. Both of these have particularly good filmed choreography. The dance sequences are where these things live, I think. Uh, both of them, Matilda and Oliver. Both of these are British films, and get this, they were both filmed at the legendary Shepperton Studios, which, if you don't know, it's one of the largest facilities in the UK. It's got 15 stages, ranging from 280 square meters to 2,800 square meters. Um, so there you go. And it's pretty wild if you've ever seen Oliver, which I think we're going to talk about second here today. It is wild that that's all done on a studio in a studio and not out on the street because it's huge There's a lot going on all built fake city london another thing they have in common is that both of these musicals were written by non-broadway guys right so uh people that came from the realm of pop music matilda as we know is written by tim minchin the aussie uh comedy songwriter, singer-songwriter, and then um, Oliver was written by Lionel Bart, who wrote uh, a lot of, um, you know, 50s uh, rock and roll. So there you go. And finally, and but certainly not most importantly, but just it's an interesting coincidence, uh, These the source material for both of these, uh, of course, are Roald Dahl and Charles Dickens. So the authors of the source material for both of these musicals were accused of anti-Semitism. So there you go. 
And, uh, you know, I'm not going to get too much into that. It's my first episode. Uh, I'm going to tread lightly here. I'm a goy myself. Um, and it's not uh, my argument to make. But um, so here's the thing. I, I had sort of heard through the grapevine, <laughs> the rumor mill, that uh, Roald Dahl was uh, an anti-Semite. And I, um, you know, I, I, I just like anyone else that grew up in any era, post-1970, whatever, you know, I love... Loved the books of Roald Dahl, particularly The Twits. I remember uh, really liking the book The Twits, reading that uh, in Ireland with my family. Uh, the book we had when we were on vacation. All, and, you know, I like all the rest of them, too. I like uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and so on. So I heard that he was an anti-Semite. My research on this show, by the way, is... Uh, and I know that this is like uh, become kind of a cliché where someone will do a podcast like, we don't really do research here. <laughs> where is our uninformed? <laughs> Isn't that adorable? Um, I guess I'm kind of doing that too, so sorry. But also, we're talking about musical theater, which is kind of uh, inherently trivial in the first place. That's not true. But my point is, I don't expect really uh, deep research into this. This is mostly Wikipedia-based information. But on Roald Dahl's Wikipedia page, um, I did see it, or a little article in it, or a chapter in it, I don't know what you call that on Wikipedia, um, talking about uh, anti-Semitism and uh, anti-Israel comments. And I was like, oh, interesting, okay. And the first quote that I saw from him, he says, I am not anti-Semitic, I am anti-Israel. And I was like, okay, I see. This could have been um, <laughs> blown out of proportion. <laughs> Maybe... Uh, you know, maybe he just said something like, you know, uh, Palestinian children have human rights, and then they called him an anti-Semite. It's possible. It's, uh, it wouldn't be the first time. But then I read a few more of his uh, quotes on the subject, and I realized, oh, no, confirmed. <laughs> He's an anti-Semite. Wow. Uh, I'll let, you know, let me tell you what he said in 1983 uh, in an interview with uh, the New Statesman. He said, quote, I'm not going to do an accent or an impression here. I'll just tell you what he said. He said... There's a trait in the Jewish character that does provoke animosity. Maybe it's a kind of lack of generosity towards non-Jews. I mean, there is always a reason why anti-anything crops up anywhere. Even a stinker like Hitler didn't just pick on them for no reason. So yeah, that's not great. So let's separate the art from the artist for our purposes here today. If you don't want to do that, feel free to turn off this podcast. Uh, as always, feel free to not listen. But um, know that I am not endorsing anti-Semitism in any way. So then uh, Charles Dickens, of course, uh, the master of uh, Dickensian. Of course, why wouldn't he be? He's Charles Dickens. He's... Um, you know, I, I don't think he was accused of being an anti-Semite in a roundabout, in an all-encompassing sort of way. But I think that, so the character of Fagin in Oliver Twist, the book that the musical Oliver is based on, is something of an ugly Jewish stereotype. And he got, really at the time, uh, even right when the book came out, he was criticized for this. His response, which is uh, a lot better than Dahl's response, he says, I have no feeling towards the Jew, but a friendly one. I always speak well of them, whether in public or private, and bear my testimony, as I ought to do, to their perfect good faith in such transactions as I have ever had with them. Cool. So there you go. <laughs> 
it's it's along the lines of the the Passion of the Christ uh, Jewish uh, thing, where uh, it's just there was a bad guy that was really uh, Jewish seeming and was Jewish, so people didn't like that. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Let's start by talking about Matilda the Musical. So Matilda is very front of mind for me, and I'll tell you why. It's because about three weeks ago, I directed a all-children's production of it for a uh, children's theater company here in Los Angeles. And... Um, you know, so it's very front of mind for me, basically. Uh, we did the junior version, Matilda Jr. If you're not familiar, there is a, when you buy the rights to shows through Musical Theater International, which owns most of the shows, uh, we pay them royalties. They have a Broadway Junior series where they take shows that are, um, you know, kid adjacent, uh, Matilda, uh, Into the Woods, etc., and they will um, pare them down, simplify them. And they kind of, the, the tricky thing about it is they kind of do this for a uh, post-pubescent cast, I, I guess you would say, or like uh, 14 through 16 aged kids. And if you're doing this with elementary schoolers, the range of the show, the, the age range when I did it was like third grade through eighth grade. So it was a pretty wide range. Uh, but but it gets tricky with the uh, the keys and such, uh, the, where it's like too high, too low situation. Uh, I first heard about Matilda the Musical in 2015. That was when it was touring and it came here to L.A. I uh, spent my life working in arts enrichment, uh, doing uh, theater and singing and dancing with children. And I was working for this company that um, was in all the different elementary schools throughout the city. And then we had this uh, thing called Cabaret, which was an audition-based thing with all the kids uh, got to audition. And then you met at one place, kids from different schools that were like the cream of the crop. And we did uh, little cabaret shows anyway. So um, the choreographer that I was working with uh, suggested that we do When I Grow Up, a song from Matilda the Musical, a relatively new show that was touring uh, and had come to L.A., and it was a surprisingly nice little song. I was like, wow, this is not bad. I don't think that I would ever uh, choose to watch Matilda the Musical, something called Matilda the Musical. I got nothing against Matilda. Obviously, I'd seen the movie in the 90s and I was aware of the book by, I don't think I ever read the book as a child, but the songs, man, the songs are really, really good. It made me listen to the soundtrack. I realized that the songs were written by Tim Minchin at this point, And I was like, that's interesting. Didn't even know that uh, he wrote musicals. So, yeah, I mean, and that's, the songs in Matilda are great. They're really, really good. At least two of them, if not six of them, are really good. Um, never saw it on stage. However, as we all know, last Christmas, 2022, there was a uh, Netflix film, or Netflix released a movie musical of it, and... Uh, on Christmas Day, sitting there after having opening presents with family and having dinner, I started uh, scrolling through TikTok, uh, as I am wont to do, and you start seeing the same video over and over again, uh, people posting it, and you know what video I'm talking about. It's the girl with the red beret and all the kids uh, doing their uh, hippity-hoppity dance to uh, revolting children through the halls of a school while other kids are like parkouring off the fucking walls, and everybody's losing their mind over this clip that this... Uh, these kids are fucking singing a song that's in seven, eight time and they're doing really challenging dance moves and it looks really cool. So, um, yeah, Matilda the Musical. 
And then, of course, later, I, when I was asked to direct the show uh, over the summer, I went ahead and watched the movie in its entirety. It's a good movie. Good movie musical. Real good. Let's talk about the source material for Matilda, uh, written by Roald Dahl, who's kind of an asshole, as it turns out. <laughs> Overall. Books are great. Eh, kind of was an asshole. He wrote Matilda in 1988, which was later than I thought it was. I was surprised by that. Um, the original manuscript was completely different. This is really interesting. I did not know this. So he wrote his original idea for the story that was that Matilda was this awful person, like this horrible little girl. She did have the uh, psychokinetic powers, uh, but she used them to torture her innocent parents and to help an unethical teacher win money at horse racing. So that was uh, the original story for Matilda. The publisher, the American publisher, in fact, uh, at Puffin, suggested that he maybe turn this around. He suggested basically what the book became, which was that Matilda is a brilliant, uh, good-hearted little girl and all of the adults are assholes. Dahl, uh, Roald Dahl got mad at the suggestion. He said, hell no, you're an idiot. Uh, let me do what the fuck I want to do. Somehow it, I, 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 uh, there was a falling out, but it got published the way that that guy suggested. All of his ideas were used. And then later, Roald Dahl in an interview said, yeah, I got it wrong at first. It took me a long time to fix it. And he did not mention the name of this poor man, this publisher. So I thought that was funny. Roald Dahl's kind of an asshole. Now, um, let's talk about the elephant in the room. I'm not going to be, you know, one of these uh, anti-cancel culture podcasts here at, by any means, right? Like, I, I am so exhausted by that whole vibe and debate and all of it. I think it's uh, annoying and stupid. Uh, on both sides, by the way. On many sides. On many sides. <laughs> uh, as our uh, former president, uh, Trump, said. But so anyway, th this year, 2023, in fact, there was a con controversy. Uh, or, you know, let's, uh, as the British would say it, a controversy. There was a bit of a controversy about Roald Dahl's books. Well, Roald Dahl, of course, is dead. I'm having a hard time saying that name. Roald Dahl is dead. But, um, and by the way, before he died, he said that the publishers better not, quote, so much as change a single comma in one of my books. Well, guess what they did this year? They announced that they were going to change some things in his books and not just some commas. They were going to change certain aspects of the book, certain words, concepts, etc., to um, open it up to a more inclusive audience. This created a bit of a firestorm. Uh, a lot of people spoke out against this. Salman Rushdie, of course, uh, he was. Uh, he said this was a bad idea. The creepy new prime minister of England, he didn't like this idea. And Brian Cox spoke out against it. Brian Cox of Succession, he said, fuck off! And it became a big debate uh, between people. Um, and I don't think it really needed to be partisan. Here's the thing. If you know what the actual changes are that they made in the book, they're pretty outrageous. I think that people are assuming that the things that they took out were more fucked up than they did. Here, let me tell you about some of it. They made 60 changes in Matilda alone. 60 changes in Matilda. They took out references to Rudyard Kipling and Joseph Conrad, and they replaced them with Jane Austen and John Steinbeck. Okay, fine. You know, because Rudyard Kipling was not a very nice guy, white man's burden and so on. I guess Joseph Conrad wasn't either. Not too educated on that. Um, they removed references to skin color, such as, uh, here's some examples, turning white, beginning to go dark red, 
red in the face, and white as paper. Okay, so there you go. Uh, they removed and changed the words uh, fat, man, and crazy. <laughs> um, they even changed wobbling crazily to wobbling unsteadily. Come on, man. <laughs> it's so it's a little it's a little out there to say that it's ableist to say wobbling crazily. I'm just gonna say it's not the end of the world, but um, it's just um, you're not helping your cause by <sighs> anyway. Uh, but here's the thing: I'm a hypocrite. As always, I'm a hypocrite. I argued with my brother-in-law about this uh, when we were on a little family vacation a few weeks ago because he thought this was a good idea because he wanted his daughter to enjoy these books without the naughty, naughty, naughty uh, mention of someone being red in the face or wobbling crazily. And I told him he was wrong and we had a whole thing about it. But then uh, when I returned to LA and directed Matilda the Musical, there was a line where Miss Trunchbull says, look at you. Uh, you, uh, flabby, disgusting, and I said to the kid, "Let's take the word flabby out of there." Ah, uh, yeah, just because it felt kind of fucked up. So anyway, there's that. Um, also, of course, there's a 1996 film of Matilda starring Mara Wilson. Uh, that film had uh, what they called the double DeVito, <laughs> directed well triple really. So it was directed by. Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito played Mr. Wormwood, Matilda's father, and Danny DeVito narrated the film. Very distracting. I can't be the only one that thinks that, right? That he's like the bad guy, the bad dad, and then he's also like the kind uh, neutral narrator. Narrator? I don't know why I said it that way. Uh, one thing about the film of note is that uh, they Americanized the whole thing. Everybody was American, except for the aforementioned Miss Trunchbull that was played by a Welsh actress. Uh, I tried this when I directed the musical because um, I thought it would be really off-putting <laughs> to have a bunch of kids uh, do terrible British accents. Now, so I told them, let's we're going to start by doing no accents at all, okay? Don't speak in an accent. What I found was that these kids had been standing this soundtrack ever since, uh, you know, the movie came out, if not earlier. And they had memorized the cadence of these songs with really heavy British accents. Life's not fair, it doesn't mean, it, you know. So, um, and so then I tried to make a rule of like, okay, you can do an accent, but you have to be consistent. <laughs> if you're going to sing in a British accent, you better speak in one. And that didn't work either. And I gave up. I'm bad at my job. So uh, let's get into a brief history of the musical itself. In 2008, somebody called Matthew Warchus. Could be Warchus, but maybe it's Warchus. I'm just going to say Warchus for our purposes here, and uh, feel free to not correct me on that. He approaches Tim Minchin about doing a musical version of Matilda. Now, Tim Minchin, if you don't know, is a uh, brilliant Australian man who can do just about anything. He writes funny songs. He gets kind of famous in 2005 touring with these funny songs. However, simultaneous with him touring and playing his piano and doing his songs, he's doing theater. He plays the title role in Amadeus and uh, a few other things. 2008, he has a tour, kind of a big, uh, big time tour called Ready for This. 
And there's a song that he does. There's an album of this, a live album of this show. There's a song called White Wine in the Sun, which uh, I realized once I heard this, I was like, okay, this this guy is 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 uh, is my guy, because it does. It's kind of a Bo Burnham esque in the way that it's like it starts as sort of like funny and smart assed, and then it goes places. It's uh, it makes you uh, get awfully awfully choked up, especially if you listen to it around Christmas time. So um, if you are in a place right now where you can safely cry, you're not, you know, uh, sitting at a cubicle next to somebody or on the train, go ahead and pause this podcast and listen to White Wine in the Sun by Tim Minchin. Whew. So anyway, uh, you know, and after he does Matilda, he goes on to write the musical version of Groundhog Day, which I'm not familiar with. I'd like to see it. Uh, is it good? Uh, let me know. Give me a call. Also, I should tell you, he played Judas in an arena tour of Jesus Christ Superstar. And wow, I recommend you check that out. I saw it, I think, on Broadway HD, which is uh, a little thing, uh, the, like a channel you can get on the Apple TV. He is so fucking good as Judas. And now listen, I have a very complicated relationship with Jesus Christ Superstar. I love it and I despise it. I, I was uh, Judas's understudy in high school. I understudied my dear friend Eric and it nearly destroyed our friendship because I was so horrifically jealous of him the whole year. But, um, you know, Heaven on Their Minds is a great song. Judas is a good character. Uh, but And so I have a high bar for Judas. There's, you, you, you get some shitty Judases. And um, Tim Minchin is a very good Judas. Check it out. Now, Matthew Warchus approaches him based on the strength of that song that I discussed with you, White Wine in the Sun. He liked that so much, he thought, I, I feel like this guy could help me with my Matilda musical. And he finds out when he approaches Tim that uh, Tim Minchin had tried to secure the rights to that in the early 2000s to do it for uh, with children's theater. So that's interesting. So anyway, they, they write the show. They do the whole thing. It's a huge hit. They're calling it the biggest British musical since Billy Elliot. Um, that's an tr- interesting thing to say. I mean, because that can't have been that much. That the, 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 There's not that much time between those two. So that's not that big of a compliment. <laughs> And their adaptation of Matilda, it leans really heavily on the revolutionary anarchist spirit of Matilda and the uh, challenge of authority thing. That's pretty clear when you see it, hear it, watch it. So uh, one of the reviews in Stage Noise said a thing that I agree with, which was that Matilda the Musical is a rare thing, a show that's genuinely for all the family. It's altogether remarkable and brilliantly realized. I think that's true. They, a lot of times uh, people will say, you know, they, there's the whole category of family film where it's supposed to be, it's not just for children. It's not trash like Octonauts or PJ Masks where uh, an adult cannot sit through it without blowing their brains out and a kid loves it. It's, uh, but there's a category of movie that's supposed to address everybody. And I don't know that the Pixar movies do it as much as they think they do or the people think they do i'm such a asshole when i say things but um matilda the musical i'm, I'm telling you it's if, if, maybe if you like musicals uh, maybe you have to like musicals to like it i don't think so i need you to like matilda the musical give it a watch anyway um it goes to broadway from the west end in 2012 there are four little girls playing matilda alternating one of them get ready for this is Millie Shapiro. Who's Millie Shapiro? She's the little girl from Hereditary. Have you seen Hereditary? If you haven't, 
skip ahead 30 seconds. I'm about to give a big spoiler. She's the little girl that gets decapitated. And uh, Millie, Mat- Millie Shapiro is awesome. Uh, apparently she's also a singer, has a musical theater background, played Matilda. She has a cleidocranial dysplasia. So there you go, Millie Shapiro. Uh, she's great. Here's a quote from Matthew Warchus that I found. And I went beyond Wikipedia for this, by the way. I read some interviews, so uh, congratulations to me. Warchus says, um, the stage show... The, the girls that played Matilda, oh, this is a quote, so I should stop paraphrasing. The stage show Matildas have this rule in which they're not allowed to smile in the entire performance until the bow's at the end, which is unusual. Kids are usually employed in shows for their smiling and for their sunshine effect. Matilda is a different character. She's a very thoughtful and quite intensive character. You have to be pulled into her. She's not performative. And that's pretty smart. I think that that comes across definitely in the movie. You know, the and uh, that this is not, uh, yeah, this is not normal child acting. This is not uh, those motherfuckers from the Into the Woods movies that are annoying. Sorry to those kids that are probably 30 now. That can't be true. How old are they? Who cares? Um, this is also, here's one more thing that's really important. And I think maybe there's something about the show, the songs and the libretto, the book, that they're both good, but they aren't really working together as a team, which I guess if I had any criticism at all, it's that. And I think I realized when I heard these interviews or read these interviews rather, Mitchin said that he kind of just wrote the songs and then he said, see you later. Like he wrote 12 songs and he said, good luck with Matilda the musical. Here are all of the songs for it. And uh, I'm going to say the S word again. Well, when you read these Sondheim books and hear these Sondheim musicals and about how involved that he, those collaborations are and how the book writer and the composer lyricist Sondheim work together and how Sondheim, like even when they revive the shows now, is like heavily involved and has thoughts and notes and there's just a consistency and a through line. That's kind of missing here. Even though the songs are great and the script is great, there's a little bit of a wobbliness. It's wobbling crazily. <laughs> so anyway. Um, and as far as the book goes, it's a really good book, really good uh, script. The biggest addition that they put in is the whole Miss Honey origin story, which is talked about in the original book and in all adaptations, but they made it bigger and flashier. It's not just some dude named Dr. Honey that, you know, died. Uh, it, it's uh, an escapologist and an acrobat. They're making, you know, it's big and flashy in musical theater. So um, I rewatched the movie recently, which I didn't think I was going to do because I was like, dude, I got fucking Matilda fever here. I just, you know, I heard these songs over and over and over and over again. But um, so um, the, the movie's really good. It's made by the exact same team that made the show on stage. You got the same director. Good. The, the, the guy that wrote the screenplay is the same guy that wrote the book. Good. Uh, Tim Minchin writes a new song for it. Great. Um, and so that kept a sort of a through line and a consistency there. Um excellence in choreography here just uh and i don't know the first thing about dancing i except that i i know it when i see it i enjoy really good dancing ellen kane choreographer great as we talked about that one piece of it got onto tiktok and blew everybody's minds mine included excellence in child acting from alicia weir in the title role of matilda wow and uh yeah not not like just a trained seal not a uh musical theater kid but 
like kind of scary the way that this little girl seems to contain multitudes and the way that she is possessed and angry is really really good um i hope that little girl is okay i hope that she uh, has a good life because wow she really she went for it uh andrea riseboro riseboro you know, I've seen that name in print so many times, I've never heard it out loud. She's good. She plays the mom. I haven't seen Two Leslie. I know that the, she was supposed to have been really great in that. I liked her in Birdman. She had a small part in that. They omit all of the parents' songs in the movie. I don't know if it's for time or because they wanted to hire Andrea Rosario. You got uh, Lashana Lynch playing Miss Honey, who uh, I don't know who she is because I don't follow the Marvel Comics universe uh, at all. I, in fact, am hostile toward the idea of uh, Marvel movies or anything. Sorry, that's just uh, where I am on that, uh, and I don't see that changing. Last one I saw was Iron Man in 2008, and I thought that was fine, and I had zero interest in seeing any follow-ups. So uh, th this lady, uh, Lashana Lynch, plays Miss Honey. She's apparently involved in some of those movies, and she has very prominent eyebrows. Now, the opening number called Miracle is an earworm. I feel like it's it's a clever song, it's fun, but it really gets stuck in your head. It's one of those where you're like, God damn it, can't stop humming this. But where we where where the, the the musical really kicks in is in the song Naughty. Naughty is lightning in a bottle. It's a really, really great song. I kind of never get sick of hearing it, to be honest with you, and I thought I would. When you do a summer camp with musical theater kids, they like to walk around singing the songs in the show that we've been rehearsing all day long, but at full volume, like they, they sort of just are always singing the songs in the show. And this uh, Naughty was the one that they were doing that most with. And um, it's just so, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it kind of has it all. It's smart, it's uh, visceral, it's a great song. Naughty, give it a listen. In the movie, I wish they would have just kind of let the song stand on its own and they didn't add all the, like, backwards flips and the fucking seagull. Like, she didn't need to go up on the roof and talk to a seagull. Uh, I thought that that was uh, a little much. One of the things in the movie, and I don't know, I think that they this was a change for the movie. I've only, stage-wise, I'm only familiar with the Broadway Junior version. But even in the Junior version, the parents' treatment of her was a lot harsher and they kind of softened the parents treatment in the movie they made them a little bit more neglectful and stupid as opposed to uh vindictive and sadistic and i was wondering about that because at first i was kind of like well that's you know come on you just leave it the way it is you know but all it, it is kind of uncomfortable how it is like a whimsical emotional abuse but then again, is that really a bad thing? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Is it good for somebody? Like, let's. Just, I'm, I'm trying to picture some little child that's experiencing something similar to what Matilda is experiencing, and like what it's like to see that mirrored whimsically, or to see it mirrored like seriously. And I don't know. So I don't know. I don't have any answers on that. I don't like the school song, and uh, people like the school song. Uh, I don't care for it. The dancing is great in the movie. Uh, the writing of that song is irritating to me. And if you don't know, there's this device where they sing 
the big kids sing to the little kids on their first day of school. Uh, so you think you're able to survive this mess by being a prince or a princess? You will soon see there's no escaping tragedy. And they sing it the second time where they go through that where, with the letters to the alphabet. We're teaching you the alphabet. And uh, so you think you're able with an A to survive this mess by being a princess. You uh, was doing C, letter C. There's no escaping. Tragedy, letter D. The problem is, um, like, if you hear it the first time, you're like, why is this, why are the words to this song so awkward? Like, who would ever say there's no escaping tragedy? Nobody would. Or who would say the peeling of the bell? I know the bell's peel, P-E-A-L. But, like, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, that's why you're talking like this. Because later on, it's going to be an alphabet thing. So, I don't know. The kids in the movie that uh, sing and dance to this are a little too talented and a little too precise. And I think that we're going to see some mugshots in a few years of these kids. I'm concerned about them. You don't get that good at um, choreography without uh, having a uh, Jackson family father situation, maybe. I, I, I don't know. I, I hope that those kids are having good lives. And... Um, one sort of interesting theme in Matilda, uh, which uh, and sort of speaks to the Britishness of it, is the bullying. Now, I visited the United Kingdom in 2003 to uh, visit my sister who was studying abroad. And I remember watching TV in England and seeing PSAs about bullying, about like bullying being a national problem. This had not happened in America yet. It did happen like a decade later where all of a sudden everybody was talking about bullying, like it was something that needed to be managed and not just an unfortunate part of life. I don't think that, it, I do think it needs to be managed. I'm not saying that like, hey, it's good for uh, Bill's character or whatever. But the, I, all this to say, the British were way ahead of us on this. And, you know, I think they use the word bully maybe more than we do. And there's a lot of bullying, obviously, in Matilda. And, uh, yeah, something to think about. No answers on that either. I don't know which is, you know, the right way to go. I will say there is a big phenomenon of uh, the bullied becoming the bully, I think, uh, in a lot of cases, not just with kids, but with adults. And it's something to sort of keep your eye on. Um, I remember my stepson one time. He, you know, people were fucking with him at school. Uh, and I remember just sort of giving him some uh, pointers on how to manage that and what to do. And, uh, you know, I had said all the right things, certainly. go Like, if, you know, go tell somebody if it's blah, blah, blah. But he was doing a thing where he would, like, film the bully when the bully was being mean. And I remember him showing me the video of this kid. He was like, I'm filming you. And then the kid sort of, like, slinking away sadly. And I was thinking, like, huh. Who's really being bullied here? I kind of did kind of think that. And I don't know what happened before the uh, video started, but I felt sad for that kid that slunk, slinked away. And I was wondering if that kid uh, wasn't being bullied, uh, if I wasn't seeing, you know, that kid being bullied. Whatever. Now, all adaptations of Matilda have a similar problem as far as I'm concerned, and that is the Trunchbull problem. Miss Trunchbull is the villain of the piece, the piece of the show, the story, whatever. And the problem with Miss Trunchbull is as soon as she comes on the scene and she's part of the story, 
she's she's offensive to the ears and eyes and she is not a villain that you love to hate you kind of hate to hate her and all of her screen time or uh, is is just um unpleasant it's like okay i get that you're the bad guy but can you go away cuz it's not you're not like uh, the witch in into the woods and you're not like uh all the millions of others villains that you love to hate and so on it's just like, ugh, go away. Emma Thompson, of course, plays Trenchbull in the film. Uh, and she does fine. She's got weird prosthetics on her face. When she gets angry and passionate as Miss Trenchbull, it reminds me of uh, her in uh, at the end of In the Name of the Father. Great fucking movie. But um, she, when she's giving her argument in court, she's like the lawyer. And she's like, you persecuted because he was bloody well Irish! <laughs> and that... As somebody who's not that Irish, but with an Irish last name, it's like you don't often get to uh, uh, feel uh, your uh, righteous anger on the behalf of your people. (laughs) When Emma Thompson says that, he was bloody well Irish. I remember being like, yeah, motherfucker. So uh, hearken back to that watching this. Trunchbull is uh, on stage usually played by a man. I should tell you that, like by a large man. The whole thing with Trunchbull is that she's like a ha- Olympic hammer thrower, whatever. Uh, they got they went to Ray Fiennes first um, to play this. Probably if I want to be cast in Matilda on stage, uh, Trunchbull is my best bet. Uh, that'd be funny, right? I'm six foot five and two hundred and eighty pounds. That's funny. The whole thing that I talked about with the Broadway Junior, where they changed the key. Uh, that ended up working in our favor for Trunchbull because um, since Trunchbull is usually played by a man, uh, these girls that we, we you know we cast the girls in these parts like they, they were able to do an octave higher and it was like belty and, and fun. So anyway, um, the movie is missing the Miss Honey songs "Pathetic" and "This Little Girl," and I miss those songs in the movie because those are great songs, and those are interesting songs because. When Miss Honey says, in both of those, she's like, stop being pathetic, Jenny. Get on your feet, Jenny. Knock on the door. You know, it's a visceral example of um, the aftermath of child abuse. It's, it's you're seeing somebody that had been called pathetic and horrible things uh, and how they have internalized that. And uh, it's kind of disturbing, but it's also beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Missing from the movie. It's too bad. The whole thing with throwing Amanda Thripp by her pigtails, that survives in every adaptation. People uh, love that. Uh, and that's hard to do on the stage. We, we did it with a dummy. Or we did a, we had a, her, she starts wheeling her around by her pigtails, and then the, she, they get concealed by the, the rest of the kids, and then we throw a dummy in the air. It was uh, very uh, amusing. Sending kids to the chokey, like, that's so fucking dark. The fact that she has a chokey filled with nails and, like, it's actual torture. Like, it's not a fucking metaphor. It's like you're going to put you in a box and torture you. It's interesting. Very interesting. Here's the worst song in the musical, Bruce. The song while Bruce is eating the cake. And I think what makes it bad is uh, I think that they just said, like, okay, this is a sequence, so we should make this into a song. This has, uh, and if you haven't listened to Sondheim on Adderall or uh, read the wonderful book, Finishing the Hat, and its follow-up, Look, I Made a Hat by Stephen Sondheim, where he uh, gives you a master class in lyric writing. This is what Sondheim would call incessant rhyming, which is what Ira Gershwin apparently did. You know, the abuse, uh, sorry, abuse, caboose, bruce, noose, uh, a truce. Like, it's, it's just like... 
you know, too many rhymes. <laughs> to, but also like sweaty rhymes. Like, no, your immense caboose. It bothers me when people sing lyrics that they wouldn't say in real life. And uh, it's lazy. In the 90s film, uh, Bruce was played by a kid that went to my middle school at the time. Jimmy Cars in my sister's class. What's up, Jimmy Cars? How you doing? Hope you're having a good life. The Bruce song was saved in ours because the kid that we had playing Bruce was this little girl that was a fucking pro. She was so good. She was a big highlight of the show. And uh, she was like 10 years old. She looked like she was six years old. But she rehearsed and performed and worked like she was like a 22-year-old musical theater student. Like she was very, very committed and professional in a way that was like almost alarming. When I grow up, like I said, it's a beautiful song. They kind of fuck it up in the movie with because they add motorcycles and airplanes, which is fine. But also, it's just like even like they kept the vroom vroom sounds of motorcycles and airplanes, and like over the sound of this pretty song. There's like great lyrics in that song. Like I'll watch cartoons until my eyes go square, and. Uh, I, I, when I grow up, I'll, I'll play with things that mums pretend that mums don't think are fun. Like, that's just a really good uh, embodiment of uh, child uh, thinking. I really like that. The acrobat story is a fucking bummer. <laughs> the death of the acrobat. And uh, boy, did I struggle with it, doing on stage with these kids. I'll tell you that much. The song Quiet is a great song. It's filmed really well in the movie. And that's uh, Alicia Weir gets most of the credit for that. Just uh, her performance of it is really good. But the whole thing with the hot air balloon is, is very nice. And it's the part of the story where um, Matilda realizes she has superhuman powers and starts using them. And it's not really explained that well in the musical as well as it is, is in the book. Like in the book, they make it pretty clear that her ability to move things with her mind is a result of like her unused gifts, like unused brain power, that she's this brilliant child. And because there's nobody around to like properly teach her or walk her th through her brilliance, she it, it's, it's like when you're blind and you develop like an extra powerful sense of hearing and vice versa. Um, so that's that's a little bit more spelled out in the book. There's a thing in the story of the musical with Russians that's really weird, <laughs> um, especially now with our uh, complicated uh, relationship with Russian people uh, in America, which uh, did you hear about the Elizabeth Gilbert's book? Like she, Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, like wrote a book that took place in Russia. It did not. Uh, it just happened to be like, or it, like it had Russian elements and Russian characters. It was not pro-Russia. It was not anti-Russia. But there were so many complaints because of the war in Ukraine that she pulled the book or like delayed the book. And wow, it's kind of weird doing a musical, especially with children, where the, there's oh no, the Russians, the Russians. And uh, anyway, it's just a side issue. It's not a big deal. Revolting Children is a banger. It's a really good song. Um, and like I said, great choreography. I didn't really get the double meaning of it <laughs> until way too late. And then I was embarrassed the, of revolting, you know. That, you know yeah. Anyway, uh, our, our version of Revolting Children, I think, was really impressive. I had a great choreographer on this show. And uh, every time I saw it, it gave me chills. It was super moving. And brought the whole cast out for it on stage. And it kind of changed the meaning. It kind of made us like – it was at the end of the show – all of the kids are doing really complicated, not complicated, but like challenging hip hop moves and singing about how they're revolting in full voice. Uh, 
And it made me, it kind of changed the meaning. It was like, the, the, we stepped outside the show and all of the kids were singing to their parents, fuck you. <laughs> not, not really, but you get what I mean. They do a thing in the movie where they tear down the statue of Trunchbull, like uh, Saddam Hussein's cha statue, which is weird. And then after that, they close it up with a new song called Still Holding My Hand. And listen, this song, okay, it's sappy, but it's very sweet. I, I think it's beautiful. And the sequence of the, mo- the, the, the movie uh, that they do during that, that song in the movie is, is really nice. And it's a nice ending. I like how Matilda's like, it does a little uh, montage where she's hanging out with Miss Honey. And she's like also still hanging out with the librarian. And she's like wearing a regular t-shirt and telling her a story. It's just nice. I liked it. It's nice. Yeah, call me a big softy. But uh, I liked it. Oh, man. It's like almost an hour in and I'm still in the first musical. So let me just final thoughts on Matilda. I think that it's a net positive. I have problems with it and I talked about it. I think that there's a lot of value in teaching kids to question authority and institutions, which is what this musical does really well, really articulately, really convincingly, and it does it with great songs, which is a great way to get to the hearts and minds of anybody, especially children. And it's a good lesson for, you know, when you're at a young age. However, (laughs) and maybe this is just me and I'm just projecting a little bit, so take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. I think that there's nuance to this principle when you grow up. At least for me, because um, I have found lately, maybe too late in life, that righteous anger does not always serve me. Uh, I grew up in righteous anger. I had a mom uh, that was, you know, a political junkie and so and so. She always were telling us this person's full of shit or this person's that's in charge is wrong. She like had a T-shirt that said I yell because I care. And uh, so the whole sort of like rush of being like, I am questioning your authority and I am uh, fighting back against this is, uh, was like a big thing that I grew up in. I played George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life in eighth grade. And like, I still have a clip of me doing that. Like, oh, they helped some people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? You warped, frustrated old man. It was like my big moment. And like, that was like what I got really good at doing. Now, here's the thing that can serve you well, but if you make yourself into a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Okay. And like, it is hard to sort of, uh, uh, turn that off when it's time to turn that off. And since this is a musical with a happy ending, Matilda is able to turn that off. We don't see Matilda after the events of the story, you know, then going through life, uh, talking mad shit to anybody that tells her to put on a seatbelt. (laughs) and so on Uh, and I'm not saying that would necessarily happen you know she gets her happy ending and great there's no one else uh, oppressing anybody and whatever but like for me during the pandemic um, I was working for a company that like uh, was not doing great stuff during the pandemic uh, for their employees uh, as far as like the furloughing and then the unfurloughing and then putting us in kind of a dangerous situation uh the covid wise or at least what seemed like one now now who knows you know it all kept changing but my fellow workers and i ended up like uh doing a little mini zoom like uprising where we started talking to each other and and, like having a collective demand like we will not go in person you know and like it was good at first and then from where at least like from my part of it i could see it like getting completely out of control because then we just started being combative about everything and in retrospect it was like oh yeah because we were all whipped up into a frenzy 
And, you know, there's a line uh, in Revolting Children where they say, never again will I doubt when my mommy says I'm a miracle. Really? All right. That'll, that's nice for a few years. But if you go around telling everyone you're a miracle as an adult, you might not be a miracle. And that's what I have to say about Matilda the Musical. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Oliver. Oliver, Oliver, never before has a boy wanted more. So this is an older one, obviously. Uh, the movie is from 1968. It premiered on Broadway in 1960. My personal experience with Oliver is a little spotty. I remember seeing parts of the movie on VHS in my den in Pacific Palisades. Uh, I think my sister was watching it and I was just nearby seeing parts of it. Unfortunately, one of the parts that I saw was, here comes a big spoiler, Nancy's murder. And it scared the fuck out of me and it upset the fuck out of me and I remember it being horrifying. And I think I went through life uh, thinking about that a little and wondering like, what is this Oliver the musical? It's a musical with children? Is it for children? Is it about children? Is it a child? Like, why was there such an upsetting murder in it? What the fuck? I think when I was maybe 12, my first professional audition was for Oliver. Uh, and it was very scary. It was a cattle call situation. And I went in and sang and saw two adults stare at me and then got out of there. They did it this year, I believe. Was it this year or last year? Anyway, at the New York City Center with uh, the great Raul Esparza playing Fagin. And uh, I don't know too much about that. Uh, but anyway, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm going to mostly talk about the movie, like I said. Here's a brief history of the musical, however. We got Lionel Bart, who we talked about earlier. He was a writer of pop music. Lloyd Webber, now Andrew Lloyd Webber, who I don't care for, uh, really, uh, <laughs> called Lionel Bart the father of the modern British musical. Here's a side note. I got, I was surprised when I heard that because I was like, what about Lerner and Lowe? And then I found out that uh, they're American, or at least Lerner is. Lowe is, I don't know, Austrian. But uh, I, that, that blew my mind because I was like, what the fuck? Why is Lerner and Lowe uh, doing, making My Fair Lady and Camelot and all this shit? What, you know, they, they seem like the most British motherfuckers ever. But no, nope, uh, Lionel Bart, father of the modern British musical. His teachers told him that he was, uh, he told his parents that he was a musical genius at the age of six. And so they were like, shit, we better buy this kid a violin. And they bought him a violin and he didn't apply himself. <laughs> and so he didn't continue with the violin. And I love that. Uh, I, 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 uh, I relate to that. I feel that. He started writing pop songs when he was young, uh, some early rock and roll. Um, I had not heard of any of the songs. Somebody called Johnny Steele. He wrote a hit for a, a, some slob named Johnny Steele. Uh, his first two musicals that he wrote were called Lock Up Your Daughters and something called Things Ain't What They Used To Be. And that's written uh, phonetically. Uh, well, things with an F and what, W-O-T. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, and interestingly enough, uh, this was the first time that Cockney accents were allowed on the London stage. That's weird, right? In the 1950s? <laughs> that seems a little too recent that they were allowed to have Cockney accents on stage. English people are weird. If you're English and you're listening to this, can you be less weird? Anyway, um, one problem with Lionel Bart, <laughs> if you're a, a, a purist from the Sondheim school, 
is that uh, he did the Mel Brooks thing on this where he hummed the score to a guy that notated it. And I don't love it. I don't, I don't like it. I don't like that very much. Mel Brooks won a fucking Tony Award for best score, and he does not know what a treble clef is or a bass clef or a quarter note is. He just said, uh, hey, you know, the song should be like, swing time for Hitler, do, 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 do. And someone said, oh, okay, Mel, great. I wrote it down. Oliver is a big ass hit. It's a huge hit for Lionel Bart and for his collaborators. Uh, Lionel Bart never had another hit after Oliver. And boy, did he keep trying. He tried to self-finance a couple of his flops in the 60s. He was really went on, out on a limb for him. He sold his past and future rights to Oliver in order to finance them. And he ended up way in a hole, took a bath on it, got uh, really into LSD and drinking heavily. In 1977, he wrote an autobiographical musical called Lionel, with an exclamation, exclamation point. You know, like Oliver. By the way, Oliver has an exclamation point at the end. Yeah, Lionel, exclamation point, uh, about himself. Uh, I guess it was mostly about his child prodigy days. So yeah, um, so Oliver, like I said, it premieres uh, in London first in 1960. It comes to Broadway in 1963. Um... One person that uh, went from the London cast into the Broadway cast was Davy Jones from the Monkees. People say he monkeys around. Uh, we lost him, right? Davy Jones recently. Also, Phil Collins. You know who Phil Collins. Uh, you'll be in his heart. I get really mad in uh, when I was 14 that You'll Be in My Heart won the Oscar for Best Song over Blame Canada from the South Park musical. I hope that we talk about the South Park movie musical at some point in this. I'm not a huge South Park fan, but I really like that show. I like that musical. Ron Moody was the original Fagin. He also ended up playing Fagin in the movie. Um, and his contribution to the whole thing is that, that he made Fagin more likable than he was in the book. In the book, Fagin is kind of just a, a full-on villain, like uh, Bill Sykes. Uh, but... Um, he made him sort of goofy and like made him an anti-hero goofy guy. And this was apparently, yeah, Moody added this himself. He was adding comedy as he went and he would get in terrible fights with Lionel Bart about it. Like Lionel Bart hated this idea and they were like really at odds. Um, you know, Ron Moody was also apparently a bit moody. He also fought with the young lady playing Nancy, Georgia Brown, who was not, by the way, the inspiration for the song, Sweet Georgia Brown. <laughs> Um, but later, when Lionel Bart saw the movie, he called up Ron Moody and said that Fagin was the best part of it. So I guess he, you know, eventually changed his mind. You know who else was in the original Broadway cast? Um, and I, I and this is another name I don't know how to pronounce, but I love him. Uh, Dominic uh, Chianese. <laughs> Chianese. Uncle Junior from The Sopranos. He played The Undertaker. That's cool, right? I love that guy. I can't believe he's still alive. Like, I can't believe he outlived, uh... Well, a few of those guys, but most, yeah. Uh, Gandolfini. Here's one more little fun fact. Um, on February 9th, 1964, a few of the performers from the show were on Ed Sullivan. And that was also the episode of Ed Sullivan where the Beatles first appeared, which was this big seismic event in the lives of the boomers. Uh, so there you go. If you were tuning in uh, earlier, you heard uh, Oliver and you're like, wow, this is great. And then the Beatles came on and you're like, wow, this is really fucking great. 
So uh, that was a good night for uh, for you, you boomers. I hope you enjoyed that. So uh, I'm gonna take a quick bathroom break. I have to pee like uh, crazy. And we're back. Thank you for your patience. Um, so I watched Oliver the Musical really for the first time uh, all the way through. The other day, I took some notes on it. Um, one of the things that you get in this is an overture and an entreact, which is uh, a marker of uh, old movie musicals. That It's kind of cozy to me. I think maybe because I grew up uh, with the West Side Story, the movie, and uh, all Scrooge, the movie, which, by the way, was also made in Shepperton Studios. I think that Scrooge was kind of made as a... Uh, a bid to cash in on the success of Oliver. Like, let's do another Dickens uh, musical thing. I love Scrooge. It's my favorite Christmas movie. It's so fucking good. Um, one thing that's weird, um, and this is not really the case as much anymore, it's it's a shame that kids don't get top billing when, when a kid is, like, for sure the lead in a movie. And uh, that is the case here. You got uh, Fagin, Nancy, and Bill uh, are billed over this kid. Sometimes they do that, uh, and introducing so-and-so. Luckily, uh, Matilda, they gave uh, that, that uh, brilliant little girl the, the top billing in that movie. Uh, yeah. So, um, also I noticed in the credits they say that it was uh, freely adapted from Oliver Twist. And that's for sure. They, uh, I mean, it's, it's actually pretty close, but Oliver Twist was one of those where it was serialized, so it just went on and on and on and on and on. You can't get it all in there. There's a, um, the, the sound of the boy falsetto, like all of the boys singing together, going way up in the register, like into falsetto, where they sound like bees. That's weird how that's happening here. And I think when they do Broadway kid stuff now, there's a little more belting. And I know that there's some whole annoying movement. I worked uh, at a school, like I, I ran an after school program that would happen to be on the campus of a Beverly Hills school. And there was this fucking choral teacher that was nearby that was like complained that I had the kids belting because the, the, she said that the kids should not belt until they get a certain age. That's alarmist and ridiculous because kids are gonna, kids, kids are gonna belt, okay? They're, they're, they're listening to music that's belty and they wanna sound like the music they listen to. I mean, yeah, fine. If you want to preserve their voice and put it in a fucking glass case, then fine. Have them sing in their head voice their whole life until they finish puberty. But I think it's stupid. Whatever. Um, what's interesting... So Oliver, the character, the child, one thing that strikes me about this guy, this kid, is there is absolutely nothing special about him. He is not a special, brilliant little boy by any means. And I mean that in terms of the character and certainly in terms of the performance. Um, the child actors in this movie are not good. And I apologize. I know that those are all uh, men <laughs> now. But uh, yeah, come on. Come on, guys. Well, it, it is possible to have a good child actor. And in, and in those days, I mean, a couple of years after this, we're going to see Tatum O'Neill and Paper Moon kick ass. So uh, what what's the problem here? Why why did we cast these boys, or why couldn't we uh, do a little better? But so, I guess I always thought, okay, what what sets Oliver apart from all these other kids in this workhouse is that he has the audacity to say, "Please, sir, can I have some more? Please, sir, I want some more." 
It's like that's the big line, right? Uh, that everybody, uh, whatever. But he only really did it because he drew the short straw. It's it's kind of just the bo- the boys goaded him into doing it. Uh, fucking weird. I don't understand what it is about Oliver that's special. Maybe nothing. I know it was a social novel and it was supposed to expose social problems. And maybe that was the point. Not the let's uh, explore uh, this interesting new character named Oliver Twist. Maybe Oliver Twist is supposed to be a one-dimensional kid with uh, nothing special about him. Mr. Bumble is very scary. He's got his his voice is too high. <laughs> Mr. Bumble, the fucking the beetle beetle deedle deedle dumpling, the guy with the high fucking tenor. Hi, boy for sale. It's way higher than that, I think. Maybe it isn't. One thing that's weird is when uh, the song Oliver, Oliver, it does a lot of similar thing to what the Matilda. I mean, uh, this is similar to Matilda in a lot of ways, but one of the things is is that, yeah, it's horrific treatment of a child, but it's kind of like fun, horrific treatment of a child. It's kind of bouncy and fun. I'm going to send him down a deep, dark stairway without any banister and feed him cockroaches served in a canister. Like, um, it's fucking weird. But also, at the end of that song, the, the, he's going to, oh, what's the headmaster, the whatever, going to say? And then, they, oh, they're going to lay the name on the one who who named him Oliver. And then Mr. Bumble gets all nervous. Why would they blame the one who named him? First of all, what's the big fucking deal that he asked for more, obviously? They could have just said, no, you get the gruel that you get, sit the fuck down. And then that would have been the end. And then there would have been no musical. But also, um, okay, so you're going to tell on him to the big boss that he asked for more. and But then you're worried that you'll get in trouble because you named him. The, the name has nothing to do with it. What the fuck is happening with this weird shit? Then, you know, Oliver gets uh, sold to an undertaker, which is very creepy. You know, uh, the guy playing the undertaker... God, I meant to look up his name because I love him. He's in Barry Lyndon as the British general or whatever at the beginning that uh, he uh, he has the duel with. And he's also in 2001. He plays that that French guy in the uh, terminal that talks to the guy. Um, so he must have been a, a, a Kubrick favorite. But he's in this with some very strange uh, hair and makeup playing The Undertaker. And so Oliver works for this... Uh, Undertaker, which seems like an upgrade. All he has to do is walk around with a top hat on in front of a hearse. But then there's this other kid that's an apprentice working there that talks shit about his mom. And then Oliver kicks this guy's ass. The, the way that this is done in the movie is so weird because it looks like this guy is like going like he's choking. But Oliver, like the kid doesn't even isn't even gripping his neck. Like He just is like resting his hands on the guy's neck while the guy's pretending to choke. That whole sequence is fucking strange. And then they put him in a fucking basement and he sings where is love which is a fine song but this kid does a bad job at it and he's got squirt gun crying like he's it's like a very clear that somebody threw some water on his face real bad acting from this kid and also the kid seems very chill and relaxed the whole time he does not seem like a kid that is undergoing a hard scrabble life or of trauma or anything he seems like a kid that just got out of his trailer and is like super chill just had a lollipop the movie kind of kicks in on Consider Yourself. So Oliver uh, runs away. He figures out how to get out of that basement. He runs away. He goes to London and he meets the Artful Dodger. 
uh, and this kid is slightly better than Oliver. He is kind of deadpan in the face, but he does a nice job, and he's got a cute little outfit. So he, <laughs> uh, consider yourself as where it's like, wow, it's the, the, the dancing, the prancing magistrates. Oh, my God. And that's like the first group dance that you see is these magistrates are prancing down the street. And the butchers are doing shit with their, their their meat. They're dancing around with their meat. You get you see pretty much everybody. The song is impressive. It is endless. It goes on and on. But it's also like, why is it happening? A lot of these songs make you ask, like, why are these songs? And I think if it was made today, with uh, the sort of uh, the ideas we have about songs moving a story forward, they really don't in this. the The story is speed bumped at every turn. And this is uh, no exception. Why is the whole city saying that he should consider himself at home? Like what? That is not our experience. The rest of the show, it is not a welcoming city at all. It's a horrific, uh, uh, mean city. So why are we saying to consider yourself? And why are we doing it for so long? The Artful Dodger takes Oliver to um, this little hideaway where Fagin is uh, in charge of uh, all these kids. And there's an owl. Holy shit, that fucking owl. I, I wanted to look up how they did the owl. Is that a fake owl? Or is that a, is that like somebody trained that owl? That's something that's probably knowable. I'm sorry for not knowing it. Fagin has a weird accent that seems to only kick in when he's singing. I don't understand why. I don't know if it's just like a Jewish accent generally. So also, so this is interesting, and this is probably a 2023 thing. Um, when Fagin meets Oliver and the way that he talks to him, that's the third time in the movie that I feel like I'm uh, being shown a child molester. Like, it's happening kind of over and over again. Um, you know, with The Undertaker, when The Undertaker sort of leering through the window and then beckons the guy over saying, yeah, I'll buy this boy. It's like, oh, shit. What are you going to do with this boy? I'm concerned. And it, ha it keeps on happening. Uh, you know, or, or, I mean, maybe. The, and then it happens with Fagin. You know, he, he sings, you got to pick a pocket or two, which again is a long song that says the one thing a million different ways. And then when he like puts Oliver to bed, he says, if you go on the way you started, you will be the greatest man of all time. Why? Like, what makes you think that? There's nothing special about this fucking kid. He's a nobody. He's nothing. He's just another one of the kids. But it feels like he's getting groomed. And then later, like, and then when we meet Bill Sykes, I, you, you kind of feel like, oh, Fagin's job is to groom these boys for Bill Sykes. I get that that's not it. And I get that it was another time and that these boys are just uh, being treated like uh, manpower and chattel. And it's, there's no sexual element to it. But it's hard to watch it in 2023 and not at least think about that for a minute. Um, I really liked uh, when they sang It's a Fine Life. And the, uh, the lady that plays Nancy does a really nice job overall in this. It seems like a good time. But it also, just storytelling-wise, it is weird when it gets to that whole sequence, It's a Fine Life. Where the fuck did Oliver go? I know where he went. He's asleep, but... We, we've been following Oliver this entire story. He has been our entry point into this world. And then all of a sudden we are following Fagin into this place where there's this new lady and there's Bill Sykes. 
I remember Bill Sykes, Bill Sykes being like so scary, but he was not as scary as I remembered watching as an adult. He looks a lot and uh, like Javier Bardem. Does anyone else see that? And he's also behaving a lot like Javier Bardem's character in No Country for Old Men. Um, Anton something. So yeah. So anyhow, um, like I said, I, I, I think I feel like I'm supposed to be moved by the connection between Fagin and Oliver, but um, it's alarming. It's it's weird that they're, you know, have this connection. Also, like, um, there's a thing where Nancy comes to the hideaway and meets Oliver and was like, oh, manners. Oliver has manners. That's new. None of these kids have manners. Why does Oliver have manners? Who the fuck taught him manners? He didn't come from any... He His mother fucking died when she looked at him. And then he was in the workhouse. Like, who the fuck... He, he, he should have uh, worse manners than any of the boys. I have to assume some of those boys ran away from home and became pickpockets. Not Oliver. I mean, he, he ran away from the workhouse, but... I don't know. That, that's weird to me. They have the song, I'd do anything for you, dear anything, which is a cute little song. That's, by the way, the song that they sang on the Ed Sullivan show. But um, there's a line in that that like, weirds me out where she's like, will you do this, anything? Will you do this, anything? And then she says, will you fight my bill? And he goes, what fisticuffs? I'll do anything. So he doesn't answer. He's just like, uh, <laughs> what do you mean? Fight him? Fisticuffs? And then he just keeps on going. He doesn't say that he would, and he doesn't say that he wouldn't. And it's kind of like uh, the meatloaf, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. I guess that's the that that he won't do. He won't fight her bill. But then the fucking song goes on, and he keeps on saying he'd do anything. Uh, anyway, whatever. So the first time that I noticed that something is amiss with Oliver's singing voices during the, his section of I'd do anything, uh, I, I didn't notice it on Where is Love. But at this point, he's singing, and it sounds insane. It sounds like a lady, like an adult woman, and not at all like a child. And then guess what? I did a little bit of research. It is! It's a woman named Kath Green. They had to go back and overdub uh, Oliver's voice every time he sang. I, I'd be curious to know what it's saying. I'd be curious to know why they cast this kid, first of all. Was he somebody's son? Why did you cast somebody who can't sing and can't act in the title role of a musical? Fucking weird. Then there's a song called uh, Be Back Soon. You could go, but be back soon. It's a little fucking song. Why? That song doesn't need to exist. And it doesn't need to be that long. I feel that about all these songs. Doesn't need to be here. Doesn't need to be that long. Except for like one or two. I don't like Oliver the Musical. I guess I should have led with that. <laughs> I learned that I don't like this very much. When I watched it. <sighs> Then Oliver goes with his buddies and they steal a man's wallet. And then Oliver like sees it and the man turns around. Oliver looks so surprised that those boys stole that man's wallet. Like so shocked. and like, oh my God. They, you, you sat through an entire song called You've Got to Pick a Pocket or Two. Why is this news to you that they were going to steal that man's wallet? <sighs> There's a long thrilling chase sequence. He gets arrested. He goes to court. <laughs> And the judge, this is the the best part of the movie so far, uh, is this judge. Uh, also wearing weird um, makeup, stage makeup in a film and like a hair, a wig or something. But not like a judge's wig. Maybe it was. I don't remember. But he's like, he's drinking under his desk 
in a way that is so weird and obvious. Uh, like, but he's drinking like sherry from a glass and it's under like a school desk that lifts up. Uh, it's, it's very funny. I found it very funny. Uh, Oliver gets adopted by the dude that whose wallet his buddy stole. And he ends up uh, at Bloomsbury Square. And there's uh, the second most impressive, or probably the first most impressive, but the second time there's a really impressive choreography sequence, which is Who Will Buy? Uh, at Bloomsbury Square. All made, uh, built there on set. And um, it starts with, uh, Who will buy my red roses? And then... Milk for sale, milk for sale, <laughs> and uh, balloons, balloons. That's not what it actually is, but yeah, it's a coral uh, buskers uh, selling stuff. Suspiciously, there are no buyers anywhere. There's just a bunch of people selling. Are they supposed to be selling to the people in the houses? Like, are you supposed to look out your window and be like Oliver does, and just be like, "Hey, I'll buy a rose," and then go downstairs and buy one? Maybe, but there's no one on the street being uh, trying to buy anything. Um. So thematically, also, this is where Oliver really, Oliver the musical, not the kid, but also Oliver the kids, like where it runs into trouble. I think that this is where uh, I started to be like, fuck Oliver the musical and the kid. Because uh, this is, Oliver is now in paradise. Oliver has found the promised land. And that is uh, middle class life with a bunch of commerce, a bunch of people selling shit. I don't want to sound like an annoying leftist as uh, a uh, fucking Marxist, but uh, so he's, he says, who will buy this wonderful morning? And he wants somebody to wrap it up and put it in a box for him. Fuck you. <laughs> like that's so, so I guess we forgot about all those other fucking orphans and you got yours and uh, can somebody buy me this morning <laughs> and put it in a box? Hmm. Pisses me off. It reminded me of uh, Crispin Glover. If you don't know, Crispin Glover uh, refused to do Back to the Future 2. He was in the first one. He played the dad, uh, George McFly. And then uh, they used his likeness in the second one or somebody that looked like him. And like I think that he tried to sue them for that. He didn't want to do it because he didn't like the way Back to the Future 1 came out. He didn't like how the happy ending uh, was like a, a monetary financial one. That when Marty went back to the future... Uh, everything was happy because his family had money. And there's a little of that in this. I think that it's a shame. I don't know what Charles Dickens' politics were. I know that he was just trying to like show, trying to raise awareness of uh, the workhouses and the poverty and everything. But um, I found that I did not care uh, that Oliver was rich and did not think that that was a good thing. <laughs> I mean, there, there is, I, I, yeah, whatever. A little more on that later. Unfortunately, sorry, there's going to be more on that later. There's also a weird logic problem with the fact that how Bill Sykes is obsessed with getting Oliver back. Like, what the fuck is the actual problem of Oliver staying where he is? That he, they're worried he's going to blab. But like, couldn't you just go to some other little fucking cave? And hide somewhere else. Change your name. Like, is it is it that big of a problem that we have to devote all of this time and energy and, and resources to kidnapping Oliver, and then doing what with him? You know, then worried, being worried he doesn't run away again. Are you going to supervise Oliver his entire fucking life after that? Because obviously, the second that he gets free, he's going to go back home and be like, I got kidnapped, and here's where. And then you got a real problem. 
So, you know, Bill Sykes is it's kind of dumb. Kind of a dumb idea. He smacks Nancy around and then Nancy sings as long as he needs needs me, which is the uh, the, the, the anthem of uh, battered wife syndrome, or I guess we should call it intimate partner violence these days. It's one of those old musical songs that uh, I think even at the time we were supposed to raise our eyebrows at it, but it's 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 similar to can't help loving that man of mine and happy to keep his dinner warm from how to succeed in business. Uh, it's it's a little bit weird to hear that now, and it, it's a nobody should sing that uh, as their cabaret song, because uh, out of context, it's a fucked up song. The filming of it is kind of a missed opportunity. They kind of just follow her on a walk, and uh, I think if that had been made nowadays, they would have uh, done more with that. Now here's the thing: this whole business with uh, Oliver's resemblance to the woman in the portrait on the wall at his adopted home is pretty lame. Like that's a pretty lame story coincidence story point. Now, according to my research, uh, this, this is straight from Dickens. So do better, Charles Dickens. Are you serious? What are you doing here, man? He just happens to have been adopted by the guy that is the fucking uncle of his late mother. And they find out because he looks like her portrait. Give me a break. There's also, God, what song was it? Um, I have this in my notes here, but I can't remember what song it is. Uh, How to win friends and influence people. What the hell? Is that, I think it's that, uh, I think I better think of that. I'm reviewing the situation. Uh, That's a weird uh, anachronism that you're going to reference Dale Carnegie in your Victorian story. I didn't like it. I don't like it when things do that. Then uh, I found out that The Law is an Ass is from Oliver. It's straight from the source material from Dickens. I've heard people say that. I guess I thought it was Shakespeare, but no, it's Dickens. Uh, And Mr. Bumble says it. He uh, says it, uh, and I agree with him. And the good guy of the story, this is whole because he comes to him and says, hey, this we found this locket. We've had this locket all along. And you're like, you fuckers, your wife had this locket all along. We could have found out where the kid was and you never showed us. And now she's in trouble and you're in trouble because under the law, a man is responsible for the crimes his wife does. And then Mr. Bumble says, well, if that's true, then the law is an ass. He's right. He's not responsible for what his wife does. It's weird that the good guy has to make that point. Mr. Bumble's okay with me. He's got a scary voice, but I like him. There's some dog acting in this movie that's like way better than the child acting from Bullseye. <laughs> Bullseye the dog, uh, a real fucked up looking dog with a weird looking scar. He's got a scar, but it looks like it's got like stitched. Someone stitched a scar on him or stitched a thing, not a scar, Ugh, whatever. Also, there's these other dogs that uh, when they try to break into a house, this man comes out and says, seize him. <laughs> To his dogs. And then the dogs uh, chase after, uh, yeah, Bill Sykes and Oliver. Now, interestingly enough, one of my favorite songs was Oom Papa. And it seems like it should just be filler. It's just a general song that we're all going to sing while we're drinking. But here's where we finally get a song that is a musical device to move the story forward. It's because Nancy is trying to create a diversion. She had already sung or sang a rousing drinking song. It's a fine life with the poor people at the bar and the place. And now 
she wants to help Oliver escape, so she is getting everybody involved in this song, Um Papa, and uses that as an opportunity to help Oliver escape. So, um, yeah, that's what happens. I was apprehensive watching Um Papa because I remembered what happens after Um Papa, which is the murder of Nancy. But guess what? The murder of Nancy is not really that scary. I thought it was as a kid, but um, yeah, no, I, I don't, he, she, he kind of beats her to death off camera. You see his arm go up and like, I, I guess it's just the fact that she dies at all is upsetting. So yeah, there's a big climax in the film, which I believe must have been different on stage because it's very uh, filmy. There's a climax that where uh, quicksand plays heavily into it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's weird that quicksand used to be such a uh, menace in the culture and in uh, the public consciousness, and now nobody really worries about quicksand anymore. I was so afraid that I was going to die in quicksand as a child because of all of the things I saw where people fell into quicksand. Uh, Bill Sykes meets a pretty fucked up end. You know, he gets shot and then he hangs, uh, the dead body hangs. And then Oliver gets his ending, you know, back with the rich guy, the middle class, uh, upper middle class rich guy in Bloomsbury Square. And it's just like Slumdog Millionaire. And uh, this is not really my insight. My friend Sam, like he, when we saw Slumdog Millionaire, he hated it because he thought that it was, um, yeah, it's, it's okay. This is a happy ending for one kid who got out of the horrible slums where everybody was, you know, shitting and buck, uh, on the ground. And, but uh, what about all those other people? And same for Oliver, you know. It's hard to get excited about Oliver's happy ending when you think about all those other kids and all those other pores. So, I didn't like this movie, guys. Sorry. Sorry, Oliver. The musical. Didn't like it. It was directed by Carol Reed, who was uh, who made his career in noir films. His big uh, claim to fame was The Third Man, which uh, I saw. And uh, I, I liked the Orson Welles part of it, but found, I felt bored by the rest of it. I should give it another watch i know that people love the third man and that it's like film history or something uh and so he, at this point he's like an old veteran director he's coming off a few flops and disappointments like a mutiny on the bounty with he quit mutiny on the bounty with uh marlon brando which if you uh, i i've only seen clips from that and apparently it's like the worst fucking thing of all time martin brando is like uh laughable in it and he did the agony of the ex agony and the ecstasy which was apparently was also not very good either Choreographer is uh, someone called Ona White. Uh, does a great job. Good job, Ona White. Now, Oliver swept the Oscars. It won all the Oscars, right? It uh, including Best Director and Best Picture. Now, here's the problem with this. You know what else came out that year? 2001: A Space Odyssey, which did not win those awards. The Oscars don't matter. And this is a nice reminder that the Oscars probably never mattered. The films that matter don't win the Oscars. So let's stop watching them. That is really fucking strange. And I, I've heard, a lot of people have uh, talked about this, that Hollywood was completely out of sync with the culture in the late 60s. That the counterculture was on the rise and Hollywood did not follow suit because it was run by these conservative fucks that just wanted to keep making Oliver and Dr. Doolittle. 
and uh, studio musicals. So, you know, we can look back at those musicals now and just be like, oh, those are cute and warm. But uh, at the time, yeah, uh, it's imagine imagine anybody saying that Oliver is a better movie than 2001 A Space Odyssey. That, that person should be punched in the nose because they're wrong. They shouldn't be punched in the nose, but they are wrong. Mark Lester, who is now an adult, uh, played Oliver very badly, uh, did a very bad performance as Oliver. He, uh, this is interesting, he may or may not be the father of Michael Jackson's children. <laughs> Lifelong friends with Michael Jackson. At one point, Michael Jackson said, hey, uh, how's your sperm? Is it fertile? <laughs> are you fertile? And he was like, yeah, why? He's like, can I have some of it? And he's like, no. And then later, uh, Michael Jackson asked him again for his sperm. And he's like, yeah, sure, have some. <laughs> and he gave Michael Jackson some sperm. <clears throat> And much like the uh, portrait on the wall in Oliver, he looks at pictures of Blanket and the other kids and says, eh, they kind of have my nose. They look like me. There's resemblance there. So there you go. Shaney Wallace played Nancy. She was a relative unknown at the time. She did a great job, like I said. Um, she's one of the highlights, uh, her performance in it. Oliver Reed played Bill Sykes. And apparently, he was a so he was a method actor and an asshole. Like a lifelong asshole. Like people did not like Oliver Reed. He's a, called a, a famous hellraiser, a drunk and a hellraiser. And because he was like method acting, he like actually hurt his fellow actors, including children. Like Mark Lester, who played Oliver, being dragged around by him. He was like, N that sucked. Fuck that guy. That was unpleasant. He was really dragging me around and it hurt. And I didn't really care for it. But nobody on the set seemed to care. Um, yeah, Oliver Reed, he hung out with Keith Moon. Uh, the drummer from The Who, uh, the, who died young, so you know that's gonna, never a good idea. It's gonna be you're gonna be partying a little too hard. He went on a talk show once, uh, shared the uh, panel with a feminist, uh, Kate Millett, and he uh, tried to like uh, kiss her, and after saying "Give us a kiss, big tits," and uh, you know Oliver Reed ended his life. Uh, he died of a heart attack on the set of Gladiator. They had to work around his death and uh, double his uh, double him up for the rest of his scenes. So there you go. Pauline Kael loves the movie Oliver, which I found surprising. She said it was, quote, a movie for a mass audience that respects that audience, unquote. If that's true, then I guess that, you know, I think audiences may have been kind of dumb in 1968 because uh, I thought it sucked and I felt disrespected by it because of how shitty it was. <sighs> So yeah, I've never read Oliver Twist, but let me tell you something, neither has Mark Lester, who played Oliver. He never got curious enough to read it, even to this day. I did do you the favor, my podcast audience, of reading the spark notes of Oliver Twist. And it seems like, you know, reading the spark notes, that the musical plot-wise is actually pretty faithful to uh, the book. Except for there's like some complications with the whole Oliver lineage thing. There's like a half-brother involved and blah, 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 blah. I'm str I, I feel like it's strange. Like, if this is a social novel, which is what everybody categorizes it as, it's a novel that's demonstrating a social problem or whatever, then why is Bill Sykes the only real bad guy? It's like there, there's some, like, progressive noises that are made uh, along the way, but then really the, the, the villain is not the upper class. It's this guy, this, under, this criminal in the underbelly of the poor people and it's uh 
you know, it's, 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 it's a lot like the progressive noises that are made nowadays, where it's just about shedding light on the problem. Shedding light, shedding light, shedding light. What do we do now? Oh, well, we just shed light on it. We did something already. The information was disseminated. I posted about it on Facebook. Thanks a lot, Dickens. But what, what's the answer? Can we have at least one answer? Like, what's one thing we can do? I guess we can shoot Bill Sykes, but you know, then it's going to create a vacuum where there's going to be another Bill Sykes and all these kids are still fucking starving. So I don't know what the point of any of that is. And the only good things, by the way, that happen are the result of benevolent acts of kindness from like one or two rich people. I guess Nancy wasn't rich and she, you know, but then she fucking dies. You know, she is martyred for the story. Uh, anyway, at least Miss Honey and Matilda was also, you know, at least she was poor. But here it's just like, okay, since there's one, it's a very libertarian, uh, creepy libertarian uh, Bill Gates uh, way of looking at things. That all you need is one really nice rich guy and then everything will be fine. So in summation, I cannot recommend this musical or this movie. I mean, if you like dancing, sure, great. I think you'll enjoy it, but you'd do better with clips. Just watch, consider yourself and who will buy on YouTube and Marvel at the choreography, the set building, and the way that the choreography is married to the cinematography. And you can have a similar experience watching Matilda, but go ahead and watch that all the way through. <clears throat> Especially if you have kids. But if you don't have kids, I think you'll have a good time. It's a shame that Oliver was considered the best film of 1968 because I think it cemented a hostility towards musicals in an entire generation because uh, people had just gotten back from Woodstock and they were taken in the shower and then they tuned in to the Academy Awards and they saw this win Best Picture and they said, this has nothing to do with me or my life or my friends or The Who, except that the Keith Moon, Oliver Reed connection. So, um, this may, the, the, I guess you could make an argument that in some ways, uh, Oliver, the movie musical is uh, partially responsible for the problem that I'm trying to solve here on this podcast, folks, which is uh, that there are people that like things that are good that assume that musicals are bad. And I need you to like musicals, folks, as much as I do. You don't need to hang out with musical theater people. You don't need to know all the lyrics to the Cell Block Tango and sing it with your friends. But musicals can be good. Musicals can be good. Thank you for listening to episode one of I Need You to Like Musicals. This has been a wild ride. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you're still listening, it was very long. We'll see if they stay this long. I think they will. I feel like they will, if not longer. Sorry. I enjoy long-form podcasts, personally, especially for road trips. There's nothing I hate more than like coming to the end of a podcast and having to switch it over. I like the ones that are like uh, nearly two hours, <laughs> so you could just let him, uh, let him, let him ride. So I hope that you had that experience with this one, and that I didn't uh, bore you to death, and that you're not dead from boredom. Um, I swear to God, I didn't do this on purpose. If you're a listener of Sondheim on Adderall, I always forgot to come up with something like some sign-off thing that, and I did that. I did it again. I did not do that on purpose. I it did not occur to me until this moment that I should have some kind of sign off. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to come up with some quote from either Matilda or Oliver. 
and use that as my closing line. Give me one second though, because I didn't look it up in advance. Okay, there's a fairly obvious one I didn't think of and I just talked about the song. So, uh, fare thee well, but be back soon. Oh, I hope you like this podcast. And if you come back next week, I'll talk about two other shows. God, I don't know how to do musical improv and I'm not gonna start knowing how to do it now. Thank you for listening. See you next time, bye.